Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out. My name is Noah, but you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and you probably know me as 12 Tone. And this is our 50th episode. So hey, I guess we're doing a bit of like a, we like a celebration it. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Happy 50th episode, Corey. Yeah, I did not think we'd get this far, but it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's as many episodes as there are numbers in the number 50. <laughs> well, there's only two numbers in the number 50, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's as many episodes as there are notes in four chromatic octaves plus two notes. So, um it's as many episodes as know. there are years since 1973, so. Yeah. Yeah, and, and stuff happened in 1973. Music stuff even, probably. Yeah, Dark Side of the Moon came out in 1973, so it was a pretty important year. I don't see how that's relevant to either of us, but... Uh... <laughs> uh, yeah, so what we wanted to do for this sort of 50th anniversary special is kind of go through and look at our old episodes and revisit them, sort of mention if our thoughts on things we've said have changed at all, mention if we just, there's anything about the topic that we think we want to yeah. add, but it's going to be yeah. pretty lighthearted sort of look at the the past three years of Ghost Notes. Quick disclaimer on this, 50 episodes is about 50 hours. We haven't gone back and listened yes. to each one. For, Absolutely we're, not. We're going from memory and, you know, it, and it's more about the topics and, and like how our thoughts have evolved more than like, I said this one particular thing at 46 minutes and 34 seconds. Yeah, yeah. It's not like corrections and redactions. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to imply that we did any sort of preparation or work for this. Uh, that's not the ghost notes ethos. Yeah, I wouldn't want anyone to think we put any thought into this podcast at all. Yeah, yeah, no. All right. So with that, do you want to do you want to dive in? I've got them all pulled up yeah. here. Yeah, I got the list up here. Uh cool. So our, our very first one after the trailer, I'm not counting the trailer. We don't have to talk about that. Uh, but our first official episode was the Finding New Music one and sort of how we go about, you know, digging into that sort of thing. Yeah, I think for me, a lot of my practice is pretty similar to what I talked about in that. But the one thing that I would kind of add in the couple of years since is in the three years since that, I think recommendations algorithms have gotten more and more pervasive. And I find myself yeah. finding more and more music through recommendations algorithms. Sometimes even when I'm not really looking for new music, like often it'll just be, you know, I play one song and autoplay is on and another song plays. And, you, you know, frequently for me, actually, it's, you know, yeah. every time I play this one song, autoplay plays it, you know, plays after. And usually I'll, like, stop the autoplay and go to something else. But every every now and then I'll, like, get used to that playing or be in another room and it'll flow. And I'll be like, oh, cool, okay. You're right, title. Your algorithm is yeah. correct. I do like this song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think for me, like, the biggest change is that I've been doing it a lot more. Mm. Uh, listening to a lot more music sort of casually than I used to, re-finding that joy, which I think is great. Uh, part of that is like, I think we did this in 2020. I think I was still doing a video every week that was sort of near the end of that. And I just, that took so much of my time. I just did not have, but like these days, I think I'm listening probably to an album on most days, sometimes two or three. Uh, so it's, that's been been really great. Similarly, recommendation algorithms have become, I mean, that's always sort of been a big thing for me. Like I do a lot of my listening on YouTube and I just, you know, I just have a tab open. That's whatever album I listened to last. And I'll either 
I'll, I'll glance at the recommendations, see if there's anything I'm currently sort of going through just a deeper and deeper rabbit hole into like metal albums that it recommends that I've never heard of, but have cool album covers. Yeah. There's a lot of obscure, uh, I get a lot of obscure like psych rock yeah. with cool album covers that I've never heard of. Yeah. And that's like, I, I've found a lot of really cool stuff and that's, and sometimes I'll reset that and just search for an album that I know and want to listen to. I think I mentioned when we talked to Matt that I've been trying to listen through all of Coheed and Cambria. Oh yeah. And, uh, I'm up through, I think it's the color before the sun. Is that the one that came out after the Afterman? I believe it's called The Color Before the Sun. It's the one that they did that isn't part of the Amory Wars series. Anyway, we talked about sort of the album in residence idea and just like actively listening to the same thing over and over again intentionally. And I was doing that for a long time with like the Afterman double album, uh, which is phenomenal. Uh, took me a little bit to get into, but like if you listen to it as a double album and you listen to it enough times, it's really good. So that, that's where I'm at on that. Yeah. The next episode we talked about does genre matter? I think for me that's one. Actually, I'll let I'll let you go first on that one. That's one where like I think my overall view hasn't changed. I think some of the ideas that I argued for there have sort of strengthened for me, especially sort of the idea of genre as a cultural marker and the importance of that and the importance of recognizing that that cultural significance that a genre label can carry. But I think sort of the general philosophy uh, that I have around genre hasn't really changed. Yeah, I think I've become a bit less radical in my hatred of genre. And I've also started yeah. to, I've really, really started to embrace your perspective of genre as a cultural signifier. Like, I think that that's a very, yeah. a very strong way to look at genre. And I think looking at genre through that lens has helped me be less annoyed by it a lot of the time. Yeah, it's one of those things where I just, I think... Genre as a collection of sounds is basically nothing. Yeah. There are some values to that, but like it's so much less useful as a way of thinking about genre than genre as a culture and as a practice, which, you know, this is the thing I, th I see like, especially jazz people talk about a lot in that, you know, like I listen to some of the stuff Adam's doing and it's just, it just sounds like metal. Yeah, But he's calling it jazz because he's thinking of it in a jazz way and thinking of himself as participating in jazz culture. And he's drawing from jazz culture in ways that, you know, when he starts like chugging out like gent riffs, like yeah. I don't hear that naturally and go like, oh, that's Coltrane. Wait, you didn't know that Coltrane invented gent? Yeah, well, that's, that's later career Coltrane. I don't listen to that stuff as much. It's called Gent Steps. <laughs> I apologize <laughs> profusely for that. Yeah. Oh, don't speak that into existence, Noah. <laughs> I'm sure that already exists. I'm so sorry for whichever Ghost Notes listener is going to go record that now. Yeah. I think the next one, Oter Theory, I don't think I have a lot to add to that. Like, I feel pretty much the same about the, the myth of the lone genius and how much yeah. uh, it, it kind of annoys me and the realities of just how collaborative music is. Yeah, I mean, I, f I feel the same as I did in that one. As far as I know, I don't think my feelings have changed much. The one thing that I think has changed for me is I think maybe we were using the word auteur a little incorrectly. Just from yeah. having watched like film YouTubers talk about it, I get the sense that like we were talking about like really the, the great man theory of yeah. music history and that's yeah. still 100% wrong. I'm just not as sure that auteur was the word we were supposed to use there because that is kind of its own thing. You know, beyond that, I, I don't think I have anything to add. Cool. 
then we we talked about lyrics and just in general how people use lyrics. Honestly, I don't really remember what we talked about too much in that episode. I remember sort of talking about lyrics as an intrinsic unit of music, which is a yeah. thing that I've, I've been focusing a lot more on in my analysis and like especially the poetry of it and trying to look at like how the emphases of words line up with the musical emphasis. And I think that that is a thing like you, you see that this is a huge thing in like hip hop. Yeah. Is that the structure of rhymes and emphases in the lyrics are just such a big part of the musicality of it in a way that I think often gets undercredited. But even outside of this, like this was a big thing in my zombie video where I was just like, God, was it uh, trochaic uh, septameter? The verses were, I think. Uh, but anyway, there was just like a really specific meter that she was playing around with in terms of how the accents lined up. And then finally in the chorus, the sort of poetica accents suddenly lined up with the the musical accents for the first time and landed on the downbeat and it was really cool. And I think that that sort of thing is important to be aware of. And I think it's been a thing that I've been, especially since we talked about it, been trying to be a lot more aware of. Yeah, I think in general, that's a theme that I've noticed in your content and in our talks here uh, onward. And it's something that I completely agree with. I mean, I've been a, I've been a lyrics guy from a long time. I studied yeah. English in my undergrad. I love poetry. So I, I completely agree with all of that analysis there. Yeah. And like, I also, I stand by, I think in that one, I argued that like lyrics can also be overcredited and I still think that's true. Yeah. It's very easy to overcorrect for that when you're like being the music expert. It's like, I've moved beyond lyrics and it's like, no, there are still lyrics. Yeah. And they still matter. And like that, that's still an important part of what the thing is. This is not exactly something we talked about in it, but something that I've been just in, with lyrics in general is I've been really, really uh, appreciating a lot more sort of different lyrical traditions. You know, yeah. like I come from a rock background and almost all of the lyrics in rock are kind of a post-Beatles, post-Dylan lyricism. I've been really enjoying a lot of golden age of show tunes lyricism. A lot of like the lyricism of Ira Gershwin is someone where those kinds of songs are something I've been appreciating a lot, where it's less about this sort of abstract poetic thing. And it's a lot more kind of just using words in clever, witty ways and yeah. the amount of wordplay in them. Rodgers and Hammerstein I've been listening to a lot of and Oscar Hammerstein's lyricism is just so, so playful with words. And I think that that's something, again, especially in the show tune tradition, a lot of it is also so intrinsically tied to the phrasings of the music and things like that in a way that I just, I appreciate a ton and I've been listening to a lot of old show tunes and appreciating the the sort of great American songbook approach to lyricism yeah. more than I had in the past. I think a thing that you're sort of touching on there that I want to sort of drag out a bit is that in a lot of those things that you talk about, like Rodgers and Hammerstein is like one of those people is the lyricist. Yes. That's like his whole thing. And that this is a... a fairly common thing in musical yeah. theater is you just have someone whose job it is to do words. Well, and not even just in musical theater, like in pop music leading up, like pre-rock pop music. Because a lot of, even before Hammerstein, like Rogers and Hart did a lot of like pop songs that were written the same, the Tin Pan Alley approach, right? Yeah, yeah, that whole, that whole thing where like, you know, and th this is sort of 
you know, this is getting off into another thing, but the sort of musician as whole package thing, which I think we have later on and we can sort of cover that yeah. when we get to that. But like just this idea that all of these skills need to be one person sort of loses out on people who are just really, really good at one of them. Yeah. And, you know, but we, we'll, we'll cover that more when we get to that episode because uh, yeah, uh, we get to move on to the next one. Cool. Yeah. Next one is cover songs. Any thoughts on cover songs? Um, I mean, I'd, I'd like to reinforce that Limp Biscuits Behind Blue Eyes is the greatest cover ever made. I believe that yeah. was my official stance there. That, that was our, our general thesis in yep. that episode. Yep. I, I think something that I've been interested in a lot with covers lately is sort of figuring out what is the difference between a cover and a standard? And is there yeah. a difference there? Again, with my sort of yeah. obsessions with Great American Songbook that comes in, because for a long time, like most of music was standards and was covers, yeah. was people playing songs that uh, existed in the zeitgeist. So I've been a lot more interested in sort of where do you draw the line between a cover and a standard? And is there, you know, is there a meaningful difference between the two, which I think there is. I think there is. Like, I think this is something we touched on a little bit in that episode, but sort of glossed past. And I don't know, maybe standards is a thing we can do a whole episode on at some yeah, point. Yeah, Because that, that would be fun. Uh, but I think, yeah, for me, I agree with you. It feels like a pretty blurry line, but it does feel like there's a line. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is, again, coming back to like the, the culture side of genre. I think like, you look at jazz and there's sort of just an expectation that a certain set of songs you show up and you might wind up playing. Like that's just how jazz gigs and like jam yeah. sessions and whatever work. Whereas like, you know, you go to a rock show that isn't Led Zeppelin. The guitarist probably knows how to play Stairway to Heaven. Yeah. But like, you're not expecting to hear it. But then there is like a middle ground there where like, if you go to a punk show there's a decent chance you're going to hear Blitzkrieg Bob. You know, like it's yeah. not. And and if you go to a punk show and asked anyone to be able to pull out Blitzkrieg Bob, they probably could. I mean, that's yeah. it's a, an incredibly simple song to play. It's not a hard song yeah. to pull out, but that's very much the point. Yeah. Yeah. Famously simple. But yeah, there's an argument that Blitzkrieg Bob is a punk standard. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I fully believe it's a punk standard. Yeah. Like these, these sorts of things. Honestly, like. I said Stairway to Heaven. There's an argument that that's a rock standard. I yeah. think that sort of, again, this this gets into some stuff that might be worth giving a whole, a whole episode to. Yeah. But I, I think a lot of that does come down to just like ubiquity. Yeah. Where like, for me, like part of the point of a cover song, like I talked about the first time, is to bring something new and to show like, you know, show a new interpretation, bring something out of the music that wasn't there before. And I think with a standard, there's you can still do that. Like that's still... That's not to say that like people in like standard traditions aren't bringing new stuff out of the music, but that sort of the idea is more about engaging with a known piece than yeah. it is about providing a new lens on that piece, which is just, it's, it's such a sloppy way of describing it. I don't know if that actually means anything, but... And it brings like an, an interesting question too then of, could you do a cover of an artist's version of a standard. Yeah. You know, is that something that exists? <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know. The, the sort of the analogy in my head is like there's and this is an analogy that's going to make sense specifically to me and no one else. But like in music studies, there's sort of this whole question of like, you know, we have music theory and we have musicology and like, what's the difference? And ultimately, the difference is that music theorists are part of the Society for Music Theory and musicologists yeah. are part of the American Musicological Society. And we're just like so many of the things we do are so similar. And there, there are differences. There tend to be differences in practice between the two disciplines. There's a reason we have different societies, but it doesn't need to be. Yeah. And that's not that it doesn't need to be, but like there's so much overlap. Like music theorists do musicology all the time. Musicologists do music theory all the time. And so if you if you do a standard, you're kind of doing a cover. And if you do a cover of a well-known song, you're kind of doing a standard. But there's still different things. Yeah, that's that's as much as I have thoughts on that right now. I think maybe we should do an episode on standards. We have a lot to say about standards. Yeah, yeah. It would be fun to bring in a uh, jazz musician yeah. for that. Yeah, we'll put a pin in that one. Next up, yeah. we talked about albums and just sort of the question of their enduring relevance and of sort of yeah. what is an album and what defines an album as an art form. Yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot to add on this. I don't know about you. I feel like my my opinion on albums has been pretty, pretty steady the last couple of years. Yeah, like I feel like my take there was just like, you know, albums are a valid way to do music. They're not the gold standard or the only way. Yeah. And that's still sort of where I land is there's, there's a lot of value. And I like albums, mostly listen to, I mostly listen to albums these days, but like. Another thing that I said in that, that I, I've been, I've been banging this gong for years now as there's audio evidence of, but is that no, the yeah. album is not dying. The album is very much alive and. Yes. And, uh, you know, I feel yeah. like time People has. People are still making great albums. Yeah, time has proven that argument right. Yeah. Yeah. Then we talked about what is music. Oh, nice, nice, simple one. Yeah. Very classic ghost notes uh, approach to things. Yeah. I believe sort of the running definition, one of the running definitions we went there is, you always phrase it well. How do you? It was uh, music is anything that is experienced as music. Yeah. Is I yeah. think the, where I've said, which is slightly different, I think, from how we worded it then, but that's where I've settled because yeah. it sort of leaves space for both the personal interpretation and the cultural interpretation. And I think that's important to recognize that like, when you talk about like music as being whatever people think you think of as music, you see a lot of people being like, well, but then anything is music. And like, to an extent, yes, but also there's a reason that our understandings of music are correlated. Yeah. It's yet another one that goes into the sort of cultural ties that you're talking about with genre, yeah. right? Like there is a a cultural understanding. We talk about culture a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, I think the one thing that I did want to add from this is that I feel like I've developed or been exposed to better vocabulary for this sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, specifically, the idea of uh, definitions versus archetypes Ooh. as sort of uh, conceptual modeling and how we learn what things are and how we learn to think about categories. You know, if you think of a chair, right? Like if I ask you to define a chair, and you, you know, classic is, you know, four legs and you sit on it. And I'm like, oh, here's a horse. And you're like, no, it, it, it can't be alive. It's like, fine, here's a dead horse. Yeah. And it can't have ever been alive. And it's like, well, now you've eliminated wood and leather. And like, it's really hard to actually come up with a clear, concise definition that captures exactly what a chair is. But like, when you were growing up, you learned that certain things were chairs and you established 
sort of archetypes of what a chair is. And you noticed common properties that things people called chairs kept having. And so now you're just looking for other things that have those properties. And so I think a lot of the issue of trying to define music isn't because music is some big, nebulous, confusing thing. It's because definitions aren't really how we think about categories. And so a lot of sort of the, the pushback of trying to define music in this broad, open way that is based on experience is sort of is not unique to music. Again, like chairs are anything that we use as chairs. Yeah. And like this, the same logic applies. It's just sort of, you know, the thing I want to push back on more is the idea that we need a rigid definition of music, not that I want to sort of put forward my specific one, even though the one I use, I, I am pretty happy with. But yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think one of my favorite uh, books I've read in recent years is Why Fish Don't Exist by Lulu Miller. Yeah which is, it's about kind of like scientific categorization, but in general, it's a good take on why categorization is inherently fraught. And also like, it just sort of explores why humans are so obsessed with categorization and why maybe we should dial back on that a bit. And I think a lot of things, I think that's something that plays into genre as well, um, where humans just, we like, we like organizing and categorizing stuff and most actual things can't really be organized and categorized very well. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I think that, sorry, I'm just adding standards to our list of possible topics yeah. <laughs> while we're talking so that I don't forget. But yeah, no, I think that that's a lot of it is that like, it's just definitions and categories are complicated. And so when you try and nail down really in any space, but like, especially something is, because like in addition, like music is weird and ethereal and nebulous. Yeah, like art is in general, and there are a lot of extra complications. Yes, that come in the art space that can come in the utility space. Like you know, there are sure there are a category of screwdrivers that's hard to nail down a definition for. But if I ask you for a screwdriver, you know what I want, and yeah. you know what I need, and you know what I'm using it for. And if you ask me for a music, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to respond. Yeah, there's just there's so many more questions there. Usually so. I'll offer up Limp Biscuits Behind yeah. Blue Eyes if you're asking for a music. If you need a music for anything, that's probably the one I would go with. <laughs> yeah, after What Is Music, we had our first ever episode of Ghost Notes and Friends with Adam Neely, yeah. where we talked about his synesthesia. Yeah, I mean, this is I, I don't know how we're going to handle the guest episodes through this, because like... I mean, I think this one I don't really have, yeah. Yeah, without Adam here, it's a little hard. Yeah, especially yeah. this one specifically. Like, I don't really have yeah. that much. There's probably some guests who we've talked about things that I still, you know, have opinions yeah, on. Yeah, have but... extra thoughts to throw out. But yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, I don't necessarily have a lot to add there. Uh, chord Loops is the next one. Yeah. And that, like, I mean, I, I still have a lot of thoughts on this, but most of those, like, I have videos about and I would recommend watching my videos. I take that back. I would never recommend watching my videos. <laughs> uh, but like... I still think that they're drastically underrated and that there is a lot of value in engaging with them on their own terms as opposed to trying to do non-chord loop-based analysis to them. Mm-hmm. I think I made that case in that episode and also in a couple of my videos as well. So I don't have a lot to add there. I, I got nothing to add to that one. Yeah. And next, we have our first official episode of Ghost Notes and Friends because Adam technically predates that name. Yeah. yeah, it was just a guest before we started. Doing, that was with uh, Laura Crone where we talked about film scores. And and this is important in the description. It mentions why there should be a Starlight Express movie, which I feel like we probably need to give a bit more time to that specifically. I mean, trains, roller skates. Yeah. Well, I don't I don't know. Cats. Hollywood call. Like, me. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. 
I'll direct it. I've never directed before. I don't know what I'm doing. I think that makes I'm not entirely sure what a film director does. For directing an Andrew Lloyd Webber film. But please, please hire me to direct the Starlet <laughs> Express movie. And just give me full control of her casting. I don't know who I'd cast as what yet, but I, I'm sure I could find some very good decisions. I just want uh, nightmarish CGI train people. That's all that I want. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going we're gonna to do like... 90% realistic trains. Yeah. Just you yeah. Know, sim similar to Kaz. It's just going to be a little too realistic, but not so realistic that it works. I actually, I loved the, the cat's design. I know a lot of people don't, but like, I thought it was great. I thought it was a very bold choice, but like, yeah, no, I, I would do some, some weird stuff with a Starlight Express movie. If you just, if you just let me direct my first feature length film and gave me an unlimited budget, come on, Hollywood. Is that too much to ask? After the strikes are over. <laughs> yes. To be clear, yes. I am not offering to scab for you. I think most of what we said there, I stand by. I don't think I have yeah. too much to say, too much more to say about movie scores. I like them. Yeah. Uh, recently, yeah. a movie score that I watched recently that I absolutely loved. I loved the score for the second Into the Spider-Verse movie. I yes. thought that was an yeah. amazing score. Yeah. Saw that one in theaters. It's yeah, so good. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Really good movie, too, just yes. in general. Yeah. But, like, yeah. yeah. Phenomenal score, phenomenal movie. Uh, next, we had Music School. Ooh, Music School. I mean, you're the one that that went to Music School. Do you have I any did. more any more thoughts on Music School? I don't remember what I said in this one. The, the big takeaway is that there is a lot of value to Music School, but that value, a lot of that value is just being in a space where you're surrounded by other people who are as passionate about yeah. music as you are and want to talk to you about it. And you can find that in other places. And this is, you look at a lot of like big, like important music movements and that's what they are. Like you look at like the Seattle sound, for instance, yeah. like the grunge explosion, that was a bunch of people just hanging out and doing music all day and talking to each other about music and just loving music. Yeah. Most of them did not go to music school. I don't know. I don't want to say none of them because I don't know, but it was sort of created that environment in a different way. And yeah. so, you know, if you're having trouble finding that environment, music school can replicate that for you. And it also, there are a lot of like other things you will get out of a music school. Like there are lessons are useful. That's you know, <laughs> a, a spicy education take from 12 I don't know about that. But like... You know, I, I think that there's there's a lot to be gained from that, but a lot of what you can gain, you can also get in other ways. You know, it's it's more about community than anything. Yeah. Setting aside the financial costs of it, because those are not, depending on where you go, those are not trivial. Yeah. Uh, but like, is a pre-made culture of musicians that is depending on the one, but can be really valuable. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't really have that many more thoughts on music school. I think I'm glad it exists, but I don't think everyone has to go to it, you know? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Then we talked about one of my favorite topics, uh, which is music you don't like. I've probably doubled down on all, all of my opinions in this. I think it is so essential to listen to music you don't like. It's difficult and it can be annoying, but I think there's there are a few things more rewarding for me, both personally and professionally, than the moment where I kind of like get an artist that I'd never really gotten yeah. before or a genre that I'd never really gotten before. I completely agree. Like this is like, yeah, I mentioned earlier the Afterman and like the Coheed and Cambria yeah. double album. Uh, they were released as two albums. So I started by listening to them as two albums and it just, it wasn't working for me. And so, but like I had committed to exploring this whole discography and so 
first I went and read the the book that went with it uh, to sort of get a sense of the story that he was telling. And then I was listening to it as, as a double album and it suddenly clicked. And now it's now it's just one of my favorite works of art, just hands down. The, the, the Afterman double album as a whole is phenomenal. But like it just the first five listens to like Afterman Ascension and the first couple listens to Afterman Descension were just like I was bouncing off it really hard. Yeah. But, you know, gave it a little bit of extra time and figured out and suddenly it clicked. Actually, something that I've been trying to get into uh, just sort of a little bit right now, just kind of casually the last few months, my latest project has been to try to get a better grasp on EDM because yeah. that's something that I really, you know, like I it's it's one of the biggest gaps of like major genres in my listening. I think it's been going well. I haven't like fully thrown myself, but something I've I've been really really trying to learn to appreciate house music especially more cuz I feel like house music is a nice in point for me for that cuz I already love funk and disco and that's the you know house is kind of yeah. the direct successor to disco. Uh, so I feel like if I can kind of get into house and appreciate house and then branch out from there, house and the other one, electro, I also like a lot of old school hip hop and electros very yeah. tied to that. So yeah, I think dance music broadly is a genre that I've been really trying to study and understand a lot more lately. Yeah. And I think like, dance specifically, I think is a really interesting one because of how, for me at least, how different the context it's yeah. made for is than the context that I spend most of my time listening to music in, Yeah, which is sort of sitting in a chair at my computer and it just, metal, I'm familiar enough with emotions that if I listen to a metal song, I can put myself in that space. But if I listen to like, you know, like house music, I don't really have an internalized sense of what that physical movement is. Yeah. In a way that results in me not being able to connect to it without actually moving. And, you know, I'm not necessarily doing that. So, yeah, like the context of music you don't like is also really important to understand, like, what maybe are you not doing that the people making the music and the people enjoying the music are assuming you're going to do with it. Yeah. Well, and part of that context, too, is uh, and I talked about this a little bit, but I really want to underline this. Like the, yeah. the big one for me is it's it's not just what are these people, you know, what am I not doing? But it's also just what is my cultural experience that I yeah. am bringing to this that I don't have? And what is the cultural experience of the people who made it? And, you know, where do those yeah. two things diverge? And can I can I try to empathize with that cultural experience to create a richer listening experience? Yeah, yeah. and also can I find stuff in that space that I can relate to a bit better as an, as an entry point to help me understand yeah. the rest of it? Yeah. Like not necessarily just sort of living in that space forever, but like it can be really useful as an entry point to find stuff, to find whatever version of it works best. Like you were saying, you're trying to get into EDM through entry points that related to music yes, you already knew and exactly. liked. Yeah. And then you can sort of take that and expand that into other things that you may not be as familiar with. Yeah. The next, we added Ghost Notes and Friends with Alex Nickel. I think the big change here is that Alex is no longer a child, which is kind of weird. Eh, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I think the only thing I really want to add here is that Alex should make more videos. Yes. I, I mean, we also just talked with him about music and Gen Z. And something I'd like yeah. to add here is Gen Z continues to astound and amaze me on both a creative 
and a political level. I I really yeah. like Gen Z. I think yeah. Shout out, shout out to I Gen think Z. They're really cool. Shout out to Gen Z. Yeah. But yeah, no. Next we have the the should all musicians compose one that I was sort of alluding to earlier. Yeah. Wild that that was two years ago. I feel like we like just talked about that. Yeah, I mean this is. This is definitely one of those things that I'm feeling going through. This is like remembering a lot of these conversations. Yeah. <laughs> but like, which is why, because we've been doing this for three years. But yeah. like, but yeah, no, they, I think the big thing here is that like, and I think this is what we talked about then. But the thing I want to emphasize, because I think it's so important, is that making any sort of art requires so many different skill sets. And it's totally okay if the same person isn't bringing all of them yes well and and very very seldom does one person actually bring all of them even when it yeah. appears that one person's bringing all of them there's usually a surrounding cast behind the scenes that you don't see enabling a lot of this stuff yeah yeah and you know there are some people who will just do basically everything yeah but like there's there's also like we, this is sort of just framing it through like musicians and composition and musician by that, I'm assuming we meant like performing, yeah. not performing artists. I think that was the implication there. Uh, but like, yeah, there's so many things that go on in sort of the record making process. Like there's the engineer, there's the producer, there's, you know, session musicians, if they have any of those, if they're not someone who play or like band members. Mixer, like master. Even, yeah, there's, there's just so many things that you have to do. And to sort of draw the line at like, these two specific things have to be done by the same person or it's not authentic. I don't know. It feels like it's missing the point. Yeah. And it feels needlessly arbitrary. Yeah. Yeah. I blame the Beatles, but I blame Bob Dylan. You so. know. Yeah, that's fair. Speaking of Bob Dylan, our next episode was what makes a good singer. Yeah. That's a fun segue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that my thoughts have changed all that much on this one. I don't know about you. Yeah, no, I think I'm, I think I'm pretty, yeah. Pretty consistent on this that Yeah. Good singers are singers I like listening to. Yeah. Yeah, is. that there's a lot of focus on range and range is impressive but range is not at all really yeah. li like range only scratches the surface. I think something that I yeah. like to something that I don't know if I fully talked about enough but something that I think I really appreciate uh as a good singer is just phrasing i think is a very underrated yeah. ability uh of a lot of singers like the ability to deliver phrases properly is something that really can yeah. uh, especially kind of when you're doing super lyrical stuff it can really you know send home or if you if you don't do it well kind of like undercut really powerful lyrics the one thing that I, like i probably talked about in this episode i don't remember but i want to just like briefly mention autotune and yeah. the, the wild misconception that like auto-tune can turn a bad singer into a good singer. And yeah. it just it just can't. Like pitch precision is like a part of being a good singer in many styles, not all of them. But like it's it's fairly common to want to have notes that are on the specific pitches they were aiming for. But that's just one of, again, there's there's so many different things. There's so many parts to being a good singer. There's, you know, phrasing, there's like timbre, there's, you know, I don't need to go into a whole list because I'm not thinking of many off the top of my head. Listen to that episode if you want to hear more. <laughs> but just, yeah, there's just so many, so many parts to being a good singer. There's just, there's really, 
very little of that can be replicated with auto-tune. Yeah. And I think that to the extent that auto-tune is anything, it is an unmitigated good. Yeah. Because it allows more people to do more things. Yeah. But it's, it doesn't it doesn't take a bad singer and make them good. Yeah. It, it doesn't take a bad singer and make them good any more than a good microphone takes a bad singer and makes yeah. them good. Yeah. That, yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah. Then we had a Ghost Notes and Friends with Alex from Low Spec Gamer, uh, where we talked about game music. Game music is still one yeah. of those things that's a big blank point for me because I don't play that many games. Yeah. Um, I mean, right now I'm playing Tears of the Kingdom and loving the game music, so that's that's something. It's yeah. got really great music, but... Yeah, I've heard good things. Yeah. But... Yeah, I don't think that much... I don't spend a lot of time thinking about VGM just because it's yeah. s similar, to, similar to what you were saying about... Uh, dance music like it's not something that I tend to engage with a lot the environment where you know yeah you're supposed to have it a lot so yeah yeah don't have that much to add there the one thing that I have which is sort of I did a video about this fairly recently uh and th th this this can be brief but like there's this really interesting developing field in music theory of using game music to do what we call topic theory which is sort of trying to identify the sonic signifiers of certain topics. Oh, cool. And because game music is meant to be very emblematic, it's meant to be sort of, it's not absolute music in any way. It's meant to underscore for an indefinite amount of time. And it's also very clearly often tied to environments or specific environments or actions. You can do pretty interesting topic theory with it. Uh, the, the paper I read was using, as an example, was talking about how games represent winter. It was a really mm. interesting sort of research process of getting a bunch of like game music for winter and being like, what what do they keep doing? What are the parts of this that like keep showing up in winter levels? And what does that signify? So I think that video game music opens up some really interesting research avenues yeah. that I'm only really beginning to start to read about. So I don't want to present myself as too much of an expert, but I think that that one especially stood out to me as a really interesting idea. Yeah, that's really that cool. Video games and the context of video game music are are really well suited for. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Then we, we talked about being professional music experts as we are, which is yeah still a bit of a uh, weird existence for me. <laughs> yeah. Still bizarre. Yeah. I mean, one thing this is sort of tangentially related, but one thing that's been getting increasingly weird, but also increasingly cool in my life is that I've not only become a public professional music expert, but like in music theory circles, academic music theory circles, sort of become a, an expert on public professional music expertise. That's I've been cool. doing more and more like presentations and writing in academic spaces about music theory, YouTube and about what we do and about public music theory in general. And it's, been such a wild ride but like I, I don't know how much i have to say about it at this yeah. exact moment but like uh it was announced i think a little while ago now uh i am the society for music theory's annual meeting is doing a plenary on public music theory this year and they invited me to participate so i'm gonna be given a whole well like a 10 minute speech plus like a roundtable discussion to most of the music theorists professional music theorists in america about YouTube. Make sure you say nice things about me. I am doing my best <laughs> to not mention you. <laughs> Great. Ideal. 
<laughs> That's the nicest thing you can say. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's sort of one of those things that I think, I, so to tie it back to the question of professional music experts and being especially sort of professional music expert in public is just that like, especially the public side, not a lot of people actually do it at a very high level. There's not a lot of space. And so being there is just, it's a really weird position to be in, but it also, what is my point? I don't know that I have a point. <laughs> I just wanted to brag about the plenary thing. Cool. I mean, I mean, I think for me, something on this topic, it's just become, you know, in the last two and a half years since we did this, it's become more and more clear to me on a number of fronts. It's it's really sort of sunk in that I am yeah. a professional music expert. And, you know, that yeah. this is something that I've now been doing for six years, which is, you know, like if you if yeah. I did that in schooling, I would if I dedicated that much time in schooling, I'd be nearing a Ph.D. now. Right. Like it, it's really yeah. Internalized with me, and a big thing that has really changed my experience with it is I think I'm allowed to say this. I'm pretty sure I'm allowed to say this. I don't know how in it. detail I can go, but um, the last few months I've been writing uh, a book that's going to be published. Uh, that is a music book. Yeah, and it's that's something that you know it's it's a funny thing because if this book is a roaring success. Far, far few people will read it than, you know, have yeah. watched a mid-level polyphonic video. <laughs> um, yeah. But there's a certain legitimacy uh, that comes with legacy media that's been on my mind a lot as I've been writing this. And, you know, just the nature of the book, it really has me kind of like thinking a lot about these responsibilities and about the fact that I am a cultural canon creator now, which is a weird place to be in. Yeah. Um, and we talked a bit about yeah. that. But yeah, I think I acknowledge more and more every day that I am actually an expert in my field and that I can, y y you know, I think I think even yeah. even when we recorded that, I still had a lot more imposter syndrome. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think imposter syndrome, or for me at least, it hasn't really gone away. I think it's just sort of been replaced with a higher level concerns about sort of the ethics of having a platform. Yes, yeah. But I think that's sort of what you're getting at there is a lot of what I was trying wildly unsuccessfully <laughs> to get out at, get at in my thing. It's just sort of, I think that YouTube doesn't feel like a legitimate uh, media thing. Yeah. Whereas sort of moving more and more, we have both sort of moved into spaces that feel more legitimate. And so it, in different ways, but have sort of become... I, I've certainly become much more comfortable viewing myself as a music scholar and as an expert on music. Yeah. Partly through just the fact that I keep doing like conference talks for academics yeah. and writing papers and like book chapters and they keep inviting me back. So clearly something I'm saying is useful. Yeah, I think something very similar to that, like kind of personally for me is I, I've been feeling more and more, I think I'm getting closer and closer to going and like, getting a master's degree in musicology or something like that. And like, yeah, I, I feel like that's something where I feel I can grasp a lot of concepts on yeah. a very high level. And I really appreciate that, you know, my depths of understanding and specifically kind of my area of expertise is like, you know, Western pop music generally especially yeah. american music like i i've realized that i'm i'm pretty confident in calling myself an expert in american popular music especially after writing yeah. this book i would absolutely call you that thank you yeah yeah and then oh yeah. oh another one of my Ooh, favorite musical. things to hate on music lists 
yeah, I think my opinion on music lists can be summed up as like as it kind of was there, which is that I think they are fun things to do in conversation with friends and they're nice little sort of like fast food music discourse, yeah. but they're not really valuable and people put way too much weight and get way too tied up in knots about completely subjective rankings. I don't I don't think I have a lot to add to that. I think that by and large they're harmless if they're treated as harmless, but like they're not a particularly useful form of understanding music for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're I think they're useful for facilitating conversation about music, but I don't think they have much use in in any sort of an analytical context. Yeah, I, I would agree. But yeah, next uh, next we had the Ghost Notes and Friends with LK uh, about musical theater. I don't have a lot to throw out here. I don't know if you do. Musical theater is great. I've been getting yeah again. This is this is a topic that's kind of coming up a couple times. This, but I've been getting really into Rodgers and Hammerstein and really appreciating yeah. like like old like you know kind of golden age musical theater and. Yeah, that's that's just something I I've added to my love of musical theater. Like getting into yeah. that stuff has just only only deepened my love for the medium. I think it's I think it's marvelous. Yeah. And actually, like one thing that I do want to mention on musical theater while I'm thinking about it is that uh, once the strikes are over, Hollywood should hire me to direct a Starlight Express uh, movie. That is a really important. Yeah, that is a really important one with with an unlimited <laughs> budget. I think that that was sort of the main takeaway of that episode. And I just, I want to highlight that. Yep. Yep. I agree. Cool. Uh, artistic intent. Oh, that's a, that's a sticky one. Oof. Oof. Yeah. That's one that we, I think we've talked about in so many episodes. Yeah. Uh, that I, like, I feel like I have so much to say about it, but I also feel like most people who listen to Ghost Notes will know what I have to say about it for the most part at this yeah. point. I feel the same. Yeah. I would happily dive into another conversation about it because it's one of my favorite topics, but this is just a quick overview. It's it's yeah. one of those things that just permeates all music conversation for me. Yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah, you, you guys, you, you folks know what we think about artistic intent. Yeah. But, which, you know, it, it that's not a simple thing. It's a complicated question. And there are values to it and things that aren't valuable about it. But my new know. theory is that it doesn't exist. I don't think anyone intends yeah. anything ever. I think there's no intentionality. Free will is real except for art. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. Comedy music. That was a really fun episode. I yeah, yeah, I don't again, that's one where we're getting into more recent stuff here, but that's one yeah. where I don't have I don't have a ton of new stuff to say about it, but I still think it's it's an underrated aspect of the colorful musical yeah. landscape. Yeah, and I think it also ties back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier about, uh, you know, artists doing everything. Yeah. And how, like, I think a lot of the craft of comedy music is obviously lyricism, and that is easy to underrate in a lot of these spaces. And it's easy to not take seriously because when we think about when we do think about lyrics that we take super seriously, they tend to be like these grand epics or these like deep reflections on the human condition, both of which you can do with comedy. Yeah. But like, you know, a lot of times they are things that feel a bit more frivolous and, you know, we tend to not rate frivolity very highly in serious art circles in ways that are often 
detrimental to our understandings of the cultural role of art. Well, and I think it's something where I forget whether I said this or not um, in the thing, but I think I talked about this a little bit. But there's there is actually like a pretty long and rich history of a lot of, you know, very sort of different, diverse forms of comedy appearing in music that we just like don't think about. Like hip hop music is hilarious. There's so much, so much funny rap music out there. And even again, like my, like I was talking about my latest obsession, like Ira Gershwin, part of the reason why I've been loving him so much is he is so funny. The song Let's Call the Whole Thing Off, which is one of his best sort of lyrical things. The wordplay and for for those unfamiliar, that's the you say tomato, I say tomato, you say potato, let's say I say potato. That whole song just has such a rich and delightful wordplay and such a level of whimsy that it's really... Yeah, I think it's it's an underrated yeah. aspect of music. Yeah. Another thing that reminds me of is a a video I watched recently about if I say Abe Road, does that mean anything to you? Abe Road? Yeah. No. So Abe Road uh was a it was by a, a Japanese musician. He did a like a full like track by track cover of Abbey Road, but rewrote the lyrics to have like political meanings and be political commentary in Japanese while still maintaining as much of the phonetics as he could of the original English lyrics. So and so cool. you listen to it, and it sounds like he's saying basically the words you know, but then like what? you know, if you speak Japanese, you you can also listen along and hear him like you know criticizing the government, and like it's That's it's so a really cool. really phenomenal like idea i like i don't know enough about japanese politics to know whether i agree with what he's saying like i i don't know a lot about what he's saying there's there's a video um uh, smt has a video journal i've been watching through their archives it's on youtube it's smtv which is hard to find because that's also an abbreviation for some video game character i think but they had Mm. one on it's abe it's a shinzo abe i believe yeah like shinzo abe yeah yeah but there's there's a video on that that breaks down some of the phonetics that he used to sort of make that make that work. And it, it's really, really impressive. And again, it sort of uses comedy to sort of cover up the scathing political critique that he's doing as well. That's so, really cool. You know, just yeah. Since we're on the topic of comedy music and I just watched that video, yeah. I figured I'd mention it. Yeah. Yeah, then we had Sarah Feldman on to talk about authenticity and professional musicianship. The selling out thing, yeah. It's only getting harder to be a musician, to be a professional musician. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. Which is bleak. I will, I will, I'll say, um, consider switching to a more equitable streaming platform and uh, buy merch of your favorite bands, buy records of your favorite yeah. bands support them yeah it's really important and it is getting harder and harder and yeah i definitely have a lot more to say on this but we also again this is one of those things that i think we can just do a whole like episode on like the the starving artist thing yeah and so i will leave some of my thoughts for that because that's been on the list for a while that sort of sums up a lot of what's horrible about this right now that i have probably said on here many times and will continue to say is uh we live in uh, easily the best time to be a music listener in human history. And 
possibly yeah. the worst time to be a professional musician in human history. It's a real shame that something yeah. that is such an intense and important aspect of our cultural experiences and our lives, you know, has been made almost impossible for people to do, right? Like, yeah. 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 And, to, and I think an important thing to highlight is that, like, none of that is the artist's fault. Yes, and absolutely. Yeah. So th this is sort of, you know, a lot of what we were talking about with Sarah was sort of the selling out discourse and this yeah. idea that, you know, if you are making a decent living on your art, then you're not making authentic art. Yeah. I think you just, you have to consider how hard it is to be able to afford to make art in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, give some leeway on that. But yeah, yeah. Uh, next we had live music. Yeah, uh, I and, continue to be old and not go to many shows. Yeah, yeah that's roughly where I'm at. Like I've got a I've got a show. I'm seeing Hosier in uh, nice. a couple weeks, and I'm very excited about yeah. that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I I did I did go with a friend uh, recently to a really small like gig that some friends of theirs were playing, and it was it was nice. It was a very different experience from like going to a concert, like mm -hmm. like like a mainstream concert, and that it was. You know, I'm, other people listening to this have also been to small shows, I'm sure. I think you invented the small show, Corey. I think that's the first small show. <laughs> yeah. But it was just like this this little like performance venue in a church that just had like, you know, it, like indie songwriters could come and play. And it was, you know, just really local people. And yeah. It was really cool. I but, will. You know, it was a very, it was interesting, at least. It was a very different experience. I will say that I, um, I did... Actually, shortly after record or shortly after that album was released, actually, I went to New York City and I took in some live jazz in New York City. And that was yeah. just one of the most incredible experiences of my life. So I still yeah. there's a lot of live music that I still like. But yeah, when I was in college, especially I would go like to my friends gigs and whatever. This is more about like it being a venue that was like not a club. Yeah. That, that was a lot of what I was doing was like, cause that, that was where most of my friends were booking. Cause they were like metal and rock acts and just going to the space that was, you know, literally just a church that also had like music shows on the weekends or was it weekend? I don't know, whatever, but just occasionally did little music shows. That was really, it was cool. And there's, there's definitely a lot of good stuff to be done. Like you're saying in live music spaces, I just so rarely do it. Yeah. Cause I'm old. Yep. And which brings us full circle. Yeah. 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 Uh, then we had foreign man in a foreign land on to talk. Uh, we, that was, oh, oh, I skipped one. Yes, I skipped one. Yeah, you skipped the most important one. Uh, can music be bad? Yes, it's all bad. Yeah, I mean, that, that was, I think, the conclusion was that all music is bad. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I, I, that one I do mostly like it's, it's a very important topic and one I think about a lot, but I think mostly I said what I needed yeah. to say in that one. And yeah. I don't know that my views really have evolved much. We talk about the existence of quality or lack thereof enough on Ghost yeah. Notes. Like it's it's one that we're kind of checking in on all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then we had Foreign Man in a Foreign Land. And this is one talking cultural appropriation and cultural conversation. Uh, I really like this topic. I think about it a lot. It's not something I want to get too in depth on here because it's a very deep and complicated topic and it's also yeah. not something that i feel you know comfortable speaking with authority on as who we are <laughs> yeah well we did it was important to me in that context to bring in someone who has experience yes. having their culture appropriated exactly like i think it was a great conversation i really recommend listening to it i think foreign had a lot of really useful insight yeah. there 
I think I probably said at least one insightful thing, hopefully. <laughs> uh, I don't know about Noah. Never. Was, you know, hit or miss. But yeah, no, I think I don't necessarily want to sort of expound more about yeah. cultural appropriation in this setting. Yeah. Musical metaphor. Forgot about that one. That was a fun one. Oh, yeah. I don't think I have too much to add. I think it's still, that's still how I talk about music. Metaphor is still how yeah. we engage with music. I think, yeah, it's just, it's so important. It's so like... This is the thing like, you know, Adam was talking about when we talked with him was that when you talk about music, basically every term that we use is something that we'll also use in other contexts. Yeah. And so that's just sort of how we experience things is in the context of other things. And so this idea that music is a separate object that can't be metaphoricized or that doing metaphors to it is missing the point is, I think, sophomoric. Yeah. Oh, good word. Good word. Yeah, fancy word. Yeah. Then after that, we talked about musicians as activists. And I think this is one where I think I think I go back and forth on that one, on this one. Yeah, my, my opinions change so often on this. I think when we recorded that one, I was very down on art actually making a practical difference. I think I've become a little more optimistic about that again. Yeah. I think right now I'm in, I'm sort of in a stage of oh yeah, no, it, it is actually like really important and can make a difference. And it doesn't make a difference yeah. in the same way as people with their boots on the ground, but also nothing is accomplished only by one sort of action. And art activism yeah. on its own does little, but as a part of a wider network of collective action, I think art activism is really important. If nothing else, it's valuable for morale. Yeah, like, exactly. It, it's valuable for distributing messages in ways that, you know, yeah. come across as less preachy. And for bringing community together. It's very easy to overrate the impact of musical activism. And I think that one of the things I was, I think we sort of didn't wind up talking about in that one as much as I had sort of been planning to just because you had other interesting things to say instead. Uh, and I've never forgiven you for that. Harsh, but fair. <laughs> you know, like one-off pieces of activism where like an artist who's mostly not doing political stuff, just like, this is a thing you saw in like new metal in like the 90s. I talked about this a bit, oh, not, not 90s, the 2000s. Uh, new metal wasn't huge in the 90s, but like where there was sort of a period where just everyone had to have their anti-Bush song. Yeah. And like it all felt really perfunctory. Yeah. And there's that sort of thing I think doesn't really help, but then like sort of drawing the line between that and like, you know, Jackson Brown's pivot to basically full-time activism for a yeah. while in his music. Yeah. Or drawing a line between that and fellow new metal artists Rage Against the Machine, right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, Rage Against the Machine, very clearly we're doing a different thing than, you know, Disturbed's DFI was. Yeah. Which, side note, I just like, this has been bugging me. I just need to complain about DFI for a second. Uh, because the central thesis of DFI is that they are mad that people are treating George W. Bush as the new messiah and <laughs> of elevating him to a divine figure. <laughs> Which is just not... That was not what happened. That was not the cultural discourse around... George Bush. No, like even among his fans, he was he was the dude you could get a beer with. That was like there's an argument that DFI would make sense as an anti-Trump song. Yes. But like for Bush, <laughs> that wasn't a coherent criticism of the culture around George W. Bush, even among his supporters. Yeah. I don't know what DFI was as a song. 
It's just, sorry, I just had to get out that, that no, out there. That's the world is better for that yeah. thought be, having been out there. <laughs> yeah. Which is annoying because like, I really like Indestructible as an album, but like DFI is just like, what are you talking about, David Draymond? Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Yeah, we had our episode with Scott Greenberg where we talked about the difference between art and content. This is another yeah. eternal one. It's really difficult to pare down. Yeah, I was, I was hanging out with uh, Patrick Willems recently and we were talking about sort of the idea of content as a thing and uh, Patrick Willems and Laura Crone as well, who we also had on the podcast a while ago. And we were talking, the three of us were sort of talking about content just as as a way of sort of filtering out the concept of quality. And it was interesting because like the three of us sort of had three very different interpretations of what content even means. And so I don't necessarily want to rehash that entire yeah. discussion because it was complicated. I think there are a lot of opinions about the word content. And part of that is that it's just not a very clear word. Yeah, kind of by design. Yeah, it, it's sort of intentionally trying to separate out what the thing is from what it's doing. Yeah. And there are ways in which that's useful and there are ways in which it's not. People who make things for different reasons and people who make different kinds of things wind up with very different interpretations of what content even is. Yeah. Which makes it a very hard thing to discuss coherently. I think sort of a theory that I've been developing on this sort of discussion is like, I think often people look at it as a like, like binary between art and content. Um, yeah. And I think, and, and I've even seen people talk about it as a spectrum between art and content where it's like, oh, you know, this is partially art, mostly content, whatever. Like I think yeah. sort of in the creation of media and art media, I've actually been thinking of it as sort of a triangle with, you know, yeah. three points and things can vacillate nearer and further from different points. One of the points would be, personal expression, which is, I think, what sure. a lot of people say for art. Well, yeah, mostly what they mean with art. Yeah. Another point, which also a lot of people mean with art is public good, you know, yeah. so and then the other side would be money making commercial interest. So sort of like the the spectrum, if you wanted to boil it down, would almost be like art and then like journalism would be a public service, a public good. And then, yeah, you know, like content sludge content is the commercial. And I, I don't yeah. think there's clear lines between these places. And I think as creators, yeah. we sort of vacillate between, you know, like right now, the big series that I'm working on that will be dropping soon by the time this episode comes out, if not already, is uh, a history of the guitar solo. And that one for me yeah is kind of heavier on the scale of commercial content and, you know, public good. I think it's an important story to tell. I think it's an interesting story to tell. And I also think it appeals to my audience and will yeah. bring in views well. When I did my thing about the 27 Club, that's yeah. one that is, you know, it's very heavy on the personal expression and the public good and, uh, you know, a lot lower on commercial interests. It ended up doing well, which is awesome, but that was never yeah. the intention with it. Yeah, I mean, I think the one sort of issue that I have with the triangle framing is that that sort of those triangle diagram things sort of imply that moving towards one thing inherently moves away from others. Yeah. And I tend to think of art and content as being very orthogonal. Yeah. What makes something art has to do with how it's made and how it's experienced, mostly how it's experienced. But like whether or not it's intended to be art is, I think, 
relevant to at least some people. Yeah. So I'll throw that in there as well. Uh, whereas whether or not it's content has a lot more to do with how it's packaged and distributed. And I don't think that makes sense that making it more art makes it less capable of being content or that making it more content makes it less capable of being art. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, see, we could talk about this for hours. Yeah, we we already have yes. been. Uh, for, <laughs> we have over a year left of episodes. I am worried how long yes. this is going to be. Yeah, I was just thinking that. I mean, the next one, we can rapid fire a little bit. Yeah. Children's music, I don't have that many more thoughts on that. What yeah. I will say is this is actually usually my go-to kind of episode that I direct people to to listen to yeah. just because I think it's really interesting. I think it it's a good example of what we're about here at Ghost Notes. It's just an episode I really enjoyed and yeah. I feel like it it changed my perspective. Yeah, I had yeah. a lot of fun with yeah. that. I think, yeah, sort of, I think this is a clear example of the classic Ghost Notes trope of talking about something for so long that we realize it's a kind of folk music. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> And I think I liked it a lot. Uh, I also think it's, you know, I would like to see more serious music theory scholarship on children's music. Yeah, it's probably absolutely. out there. I haven't found much of it. If anyone knows of any, send it to me. But like I, for music theorists in the audience, please yeah. write some papers about Mary Had a Little Lamb yep. or something. You know, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff to see there. That's that's all I have to say on that. Uh, why we care about music. Uh, I don't. So that's changed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's been a, a big shift in my life is that I no longer like or appreciate the concept of music. Yep. These days, um, yeah. uh, I'm I'm all about film. I'm a film nerd now. Yeah. I'm Patrick yeah. Willems. But like when films have scores, no. No. Terrible. No, yeah. Speaking of Patrick Willems. Oh, hey, yeah. Yeah, next one is the, the Ghost Notes and Friends with Patrick, uh, where we talked about tie-in singles. Yeah. All I'll add to this is I really wish there was an official Barbenheimer tie-in single. Yeah. Um, for both I of mean, them. I mean, Barbie, Barbie does, does have, have one. You know, the, the, yeah. I, I'm just Ken. Yeah. Is, yeah. That, that's been and that's been a, a really recent sort of re-emergence of the tie-in single in a way yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. But I want an official Barbenheimer one. Yeah, that seems unlikely. And I want it to be new metal. Okay, that seems more like Slipknot. Get yeah. on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Music notation. Yeah, I think that was just a cool exploration. I don't have too many more thoughts. Just underline yeah. that there's a lot of different things that can be music notation, and all of them have yeah. strengths and failures. Yeah, I think that's sort of my main thing still. And this this was not long after I'd made the sort of notational perspective video. Uh, so I was still thinking about that really a lot in my work is sort of what the role of notation is and what assumptions it makes. And that that is... A really critical thing that really I, I hadn't thought about nearly enough prior to starting to research that video and that I think most people don't. You know, there's this tendency to just view sheet music or any sort of music notation as a neutral record of music, yeah. and it's not. This is all stuff we talked about in the episode, but it's stuff that I really want to drive home because I think it's just so important. Yeah. It's such such a critical part of engaging with music is recognizing that any lens through which you engage with music, but especially like notational, the way that you communicate music has a perspective and that that is going to shape how you interpret it. Yeah. But yeah, next we have the yeah, the second anniversary mailbag. No thoughts on mailbags. Do we want to just go through and readdress every question? <laughs> yeah, in that every one? question. That's a good idea. Yeah. It seems right. like we should do our due diligence there. 
next episode is the third anniversary, so maybe we should just do that there. <laughs> we could do that. <laughs> just re-answer all the same questions. We've just we've entered our late era where we're just revisiting yeah. the successes of the past. Yeah, we've just <laughs> Well, no, we're not talking late careers yet. We haven't yeah. got to the yeah. Maggie episode. Right. <laughs> the Amy Nolte episode, I think a lot of similar stuff to what we talked about in a couple other things with art yeah. versus content, how difficult it is to make a living as a musician. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, especially I do want to highlight that one just because I think Amy's perspective is so yeah. important on this, just as someone who is a professional music maker in a way that neither Noah nor I is. Yeah. Sort of brings brings that perspective and, you know, we got that when we talked to Adam and Sarah and, you know, we have an upcoming one with Thomas, uh, Thomas Frank. Yeah. You know, stay tuned for that one, folks. But like, that, that was a really fun one. If I were you, I'd be looking forward to that, listeners. Wow, that sounded so, so sales pitch. <laughs> for different reasons, but like similar to the foreign discussion, I don't know that like you and me rehashing yeah. that and digging deeper into it without the person we were talking to adds that much. Yeah. We talked about music as identity. That's a topic I think about a lot. That one, I think most of what I said on that is pretty much my opinions, but it's that's another one of these ever-shifting ones. It's something that concerns me a lot, but also, you know, I think is very important that people are able to use music as an outlet for identity. But at the same time, I worry that people tie too much uh, of their identity into the music that they listen to, and it ends up harming other communities and other artists and art creators. Yeah. yeah. And I think it winds up harming themselves too. Like yes. I think that a lot of I mean, harm, harm is maybe a little melodramatic in that case, not, not for the stuff you were saying, but like people end up missing out. People end up missing out and, you know, stunting development. And this is definitely one that for me, I change opinions on a lot. Yeah, because it's, you know, it's it's the classic, you know, inside you, there are two wolves thing where like, <laughs> on the one hand, I think it's really, really important. Because again, talking about like when we talked about genre earlier, genre as culture and how important that is to understanding genre and cultures are made of people and yeah. cultures are things that people attach themselves to. That's sort of the whole point. So in that sense, sort of music as identity is a way to find yourself and to find your people. That's great. I think that, like you're saying, there can be a lot of damage is maybe a bit too strong. I, I'm going to say damage. People know what I mean. But there can be a lot of downsides anyway to attaching yourself to an identity to the exclusion of other identities. And this this is so much so much deeper than just music. Yeah. Right? This is a very complicated conversation that we are not going to cover in the couple minutes that we're dedicating to this review reminiscence about one episode of this podcast. There is a lot of value to having labels that you can identify with. Yes. There's a lot of value to being able to describe yourself. Yeah. And music is one way that people do that. Yeah. There is also a lot of danger. I don't want to say like becoming defensive of those labels because there's a lot of places where that's totally important. That's totally valuable. Like I don't want to downplay standing up for yourself and your identity. I think there's a lot of danger in exclusively attaching yeah. your identity to that label. Yeah, in viewing that as a totalizing definition of yourself. And this, again, goes back to the question of definitions that we touched on earlier, but... Yeah. And there's a lot of danger in viewing other people identifying through different 
artistic labels as a harm or detriment to your identity. Yeah. Or other people identifying with your labels, but in ways that don't seem familiar to you. Yeah. You know, you see this a lot in discussions of modern rock where people are like, this isn't rock. And it's like, I mean, it, it is like, in what way is it not? But like, the thing is that it's not the rock that they want when they ask for rock. And so, yeah, you know, there becomes this, you know, the rock is dead thing, which I know Noah agrees with fully and repeatedly yep. endorses as a philosophy. Yep. Uh, I killed it personally. <laughs> yeah, Noah personally... <laughs> That, that has been the lifelong mission of Polyphonic as a channel. And now that it's accomplished, Noah can finally rest. Yes, exactly. But yeah, <laughs> what's dead isn't rock. What's dead is the very specific kind of rock that they have identified with. Yeah. And that they want. And like, and that's not unlegitimate to want music that you like. Yes. As opposed to music you don't like. Yeah. that That's a fair thing to want. But there, there's this sort of... It becomes an existential threat yeah. when it gets filtered through the lens of identity because it becomes an attack on who you are and not just what you like. a loss of something you enjoy. Yeah. Uh, the, the next episode, we talked about deep cuts. I don't know. Deep cuts are still good. You should still dive into them. Yeah. I think big thing with deep cuts, you know, it's, it's good and important, but it's also a lot of work. Yeah. And so there's also nothing wrong with enjoying shallow cuts. Yes, absolutely. And often many of the best songs are shallow cuts. Then we had Medlife Crisis on. What I would say about that episode is you should listen to it. That was a great episode. Yeah. Rowan is a really, yeah. really smart person who brought a lot of really interesting perspective. And had actually like prepared, which was a new and interesting experience. Off brand. I was a little mad, but... Showed up with like <laughs> studies to quote. Yeah. We were just trying to vibe in response. And yeah. He just... But no, that, that was a great discussion. I would recommend it. I would also recommend Rowan's channel. I would recommend every guest we've had on does really good yep. videos, except for the people who don't do videos, which are a couple of them. But like the people we've talked to are all also mostly phenomenal creators. Or they're all phenomenal creators. Not all of them create YouTube videos. Yeah. But the ones that do, you should watch all of them, except for Patrick Willems. Yeah. Yeah. He's got enough love. Yeah. No, that's... He can join us in that category. The world doesn't need more Patrick Willems yeah. fans. That's, Patrick, if you're listening, you're great. <laughs> I love you, Patrick. <laughs> Don't be mad at me. Uh, AI music. This was a big one. Oh, I have no new thoughts on that at all. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's an irrelevant topic. Yeah. Things sure have happened yeah. since we recorded that, that Yeah, that's one we recorded a few months ago. And I am still... I. I think that's one where... It was like almost a, like half a year ago, but... Yeah, I think we should revisit yeah. that one again because I have yeah. I have a lot of new thoughts on that. I think I was uh, a little more optimistic on AI there. There's still a lot of things that I, um, yeah. that I stand by that I said. Yeah, I think you were definitely a lot more optimistic than I was, which I think sort of viewing that conversation through the lens of our later music copyright conversation, I think... The places where we differed on AI music make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, there's still a lot of things that I am optimistic about AI. I'm a lot more pessimistic about our ability yeah. to make the necessary social change to allow this technology to become a net good. This has always been my stance. It's like, I, I want to live in a world where AI music just makes the art world better. Yeah. I'm not convinced we do, and I'm not convinced it's a short walk to that world. Yeah. There was one thing that I was 
sort of did want to bring up in connection with this that like, I don't know, but we'll probably revisit this topic at some point, but just like as a quick, like off the cuff, shoot from the hip thoughts on this, the use of AI to replicate voices. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's such a weird topic that I have. I genuinely have no idea how to feel about it. On the one hand, I kind of think it's very cool and allows for very interesting stuff. But on the other hand, it's frighteningly dystopian and could be very, very harmful on, you know, the family and friends of not even just people who are deceased, like actually people that are alive and living and their lives too. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's an ethical minefield is sort of where I'm at. And especially sort of in the context of cultural appropriation. Like this is, this is a thing because a lot of the models here have been trained, especially on hip hop voices and rappers. And so there's a lot of space for white people to just put words in the mouths of black people they don't like. And that's very bad. Yep. And it's somewhat different from what we were talking about in this episode, because we were mostly talking about like generative stuff. Which this might technically be generative. I don't know the exact specifications of what that means in a computer science sense. But it's not really making a new piece of music in any way. It's taking, typically a lot of this will be taking someone else's voice and converting it instead of just doing, and you know, there are text-to-speech stuff as well. But a lot of it is, a lot of the most effective and convincing ones are timbre conversion rather than straight generation. And, you know, and there's, there's also like, there's an extent to which like, the issues with this are the same as the issues with just impressionists. And that's been a thing for a long time. So there's a question of like, to what extent this is really a new thing. And there are ways to do like impression comedy that aren't unethical. Yeah. And so like, I I don't want to say like, there's nothing you can do with this that's good. It makes me really uncomfortable just how easy it is to get pretty much exactly someone's voice saying whatever you want. It's very complex kind of like philosophically and from an artistic perspective and stuff like that. But there's something deep in my gut that just goes, nah, I don't like that. You know? Yeah. I listened to it. and I was like, this is bad. Yeah. This shouldn't be a thing you're allowed to do. Yeah. I don't want to hear Biggie's voice appearing on a modern Timbaland song. Timbaland, I love a lot of your old beat work, but please stop. Don't do what you did. (laughs) Yeah, after that, we talked specifically kind of about a controversy in music theory Twitter about the death of key changes, but also kind of using that to talk more broadly about music theory journalism or like music theory adjacent journalism and yeah, how how we talk about music and yeah, sort of what what frameworks are helpful. And this sort of ties back a lot to to what I was saying in like the chord loop section about sort of engaging with music on its own terms. And yeah, I think a lot of where the whole the key change discourse went wrong was that people were expecting key changes from a style that was doing something different. Yeah. And so they were looking for complexity and interest in the wrong places, which again, complexity is its own can of worms. Yeah. I guess sort of the central thing for me is sort of the concept of proxy metrics, where you want to measure something but it's not directly measurable. Like musical quality, for instance, yeah. like how good is a song? And you want, to, you want to get a sense of how good a song is. If you want to do that in any way that you can compare across songs, you have to come up with a criterion for what that means. And so you wind up creating effect, what's called a proxy metric. This is one of my favorite ideas. Uh, something that I'd like, I find a lot of value in conceptually is, are you familiar with Goodhart's Law? No, I don't believe so, but I might have heard of it. What is it? 
Yeah. So Goodhart's law is the idea that when a metric becomes a target, it ceases to be a good metric. Mm. The classic example is like standardized testing. Yeah. Where like, if you give everyone a math test, everyone the exact same math test, then you can expect the people who score higher on it are probably better at math on average. It's not going to be perfect. There's a lot of question marks around what better at math means. But, you know, assuming the test is well designed, that's that's a reasonable assumption. In the U.S., at least, standardized testing got tied to funding and it also got tied to like college acceptance and stuff like that. And so there are a lot of incentives on the levels of students, teachers, administrators, school districts at every level to score better on the tests instead of to teach better math. Yeah. Any anywhere where there is any sort of conceptual slippage between what teaching kids to be good at math looks like and what doing better on the test looks like, you have this strong incentive to do the latter. So unless the test is somehow perfectly calibrated in every possible way to exactly measure exactly what good at math means, which is nothing, it's a, it's a nebulous like unmeasurable concept, you're going to get some conceptual slippage and you're going to degrade the value of the metric. And so similarly, like there's an argument that, you know, in traditions that use key changes, songs with them will maybe sound better. Like that that's a very, very broad assumption. But, you know, there's there's not no merit to that. But when you say key changes are an indicator of musical quality, then suddenly it becomes a very easy system to game, yeah. right? Like this is the thing I was, I was arguing in the first one. I was like, I could write a song with a hundred key changes. It would be trivial for me. It would be literal child's play. Yeah, It wouldn't be very fun to listen to, but I could change keys a hundred times. Yeah, what we talked about a lot there and yeah, kind of what you're talking about with that is what I want to sort of like add to the discussion there is just that yeah. like, and we said this in the thing, but I really want to like, I really want to underline this. Like, we're not specifically talking about the person who did an analysis on yeah. less key changes. Because on its own, just the fact that there are less key changes in pop is an interesting fact. That is an interesting, valuable data point. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But applying prescriptive value to the key change through sort of that process you were talking about. That's the problem that we have. Yeah, where you sort of lose track of what you're actually measuring. Yeah. Where what you're measuring is a cultural shift, not a cultural degradation. Yes. But like, because number go down, if you're not looking at it very closely, it's easy to see that and go like, oh, things are getting worse. Things are getting simpler. And simpler is worse for some reason. Like you could literally through basically the same argument, um, say uh, there's less key changes, which means pop music is getting more efficient than ever, which is, it's equally as absurd because key changes are not a measure of efficiency. Like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, that's, that I think is sort of the main intended takeaway of that whole discussion is just like, yeah, your metrics are measuring what they're measuring and they're not measuring what they're not measuring. Yeah. And, That sounds tautological when I say it, but it's so easy to lose track of when you start to assign value to scores. I think that that's a nice little talk on that. We had Lola Sebastian on to discuss artist eras. I I just think that was a cool conversation. I stand by most of what we say there. Again, we're we're really starting to get into territory uh, from like this year, so... I, I yeah. suspect my our, our thoughts won't 
won't have evolved that much on a lot of them. But yeah, I think that was fun. Yeah. Music listening technologies. Again, yeah, I think that was an interesting conversation. It's something that I just in general, have been trying to think about the ways that I listen to music and be more mindful about, you know, like, when do I want to listen to something on headphones? When do I want to listen to something on vinyl? When do I want to listen to something in this format or that? And yeah, I, I, yeah. I've been I've been becoming more and more of a hi-fi audio nerd, which I don't think is necessary or essential, but it is very rewarding. It It is the logical end state of the polyphonic arc. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is still like, I am much less into the specifics of this stuff uh, than you are. And I, I still, I mostly just, I have my headphones that I use for basically everything. Just, you know, I don't live alone. And so any noise that I'm making that isn't through headphones is potentially something that someone else yeah. I live with might have to, might not want to listen to. And so I try and avoid doing that yeah and like I, I got fairly fairly solid headphones the audio's good and i'm happy with them that works for me and i, I also i listen to music in the car yeah and that's that's a different experience i would also say something we talked about there is also even medium like how streaming will change your experience which is again just something to think about yeah music distribution technology as well yeah then we talked about uh instrumental music again Nothing nothing too fresh to add to that. It's interesting to sort of think about that discussion in the context of the lyrics discussion that we had, uh, that we had had like years earlier at that point. Yeah. You know, instrumental music and lyrics are kind of like two sides of a coin in a lot of ways as sort of discussions. You're talking about the role of each one in the context of the other. And my feeling with instrumental music, I still sort of feel like I talked about this in the thing, but just like is often harder for me to describe what I like about it, even if it's not harder for yeah. me to enjoy it. That, you know, I find interesting, but I don't necessarily need to expound on particularly beyond this point. Yeah. Then we talked to Nate Holder. That was a Nate one. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Really recommend that one. What I'll say for that one is that Nate is actually launching a YouTube channel soon. Um, so oh, yeah. Hopefully he, he'll probably have launched it by the time this comes out. But if not, just keep an eye out for that. Yeah. I mean, he does, he does have a YouTube channel. Uh, it, he hasn't been publishing new stuff on it, but I it, it believe it's just called uh, Why Music. Cool, yeah. Uh, yeah. Why is W-H-Y. I believe he's, when he starts publishing his other stuff, it's going to be on there. He's venturing into, into sort of more video essay style stuff, which is very cool and exciting, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like. Which yeah, I'm really excited for. Yeah, he sent me a draft of uh, one of his, of, of a video. Oh, sick. Yeah, yeah, I got a... Nice. I got to uh, watch it and give him feedback. But yeah, it's really great. Yeah. No, the, the other thing I'll say on that is like I wound up making an entire video based on that conversation, yeah. which was was really when he talked about sort of explaining the major scale without any pre assumptions about uh, pre-existing knowledge. Yeah, it was just it's such an interesting challenge. And like I, I would genuinely recommend anyone listening to this, like see what you can come up with on that or like a different music concept if you're super familiar with those sorts of things. Like it's, it becomes really difficult really quickly. And part of that, again, ties back to the whole like defining things as hard thing. Yeah. But it's sort of in a more utilitarian space of like, I'm not asking you to like, give me this broad, interesting concept, like nail down what is music. It's just like, if you ask me to play the major scale, what are you asking for? Yeah. After that, we talked about music, the universal language. This is one, another one that I just have so many thoughts on, and it 
continues yeah. to frustrate me when people talk about music as the universal language. Yeah, I mean, th- th- this is sort of not directly related, but it, it ties into another thing that I get very frustrated with, which is what I, uh, I like to call the wiggly air fallacy. Uh, I made a video about this at one point, but basically the idea that like, you know, music is reasonably understandable as sound waves. Yeah. And that I think is sort of essential to the music as a universal language thing is that you have these these sounds and the sounds communicate ideas. The sounds actually tie into cultural and personal contexts yeah. that then generate the ideas. And I think, like, I, I have a whole video on the Wiggly Air fallacy, and, like, I suspect, I think there's something coming up a little bit later in this that will give me another reason to talk about it. But I, I just, I wanted to highlight that sort of connection between those two particularly frustrating idioms for me. Yeah, the thing that I would want to emphasis on music as the universal language is don't look for music to be something that is universal that all cultures appreciate, but rather look at music as a very helpful tool that can be used to bridge cultural gaps and cultural differences in really, in really powerful and profound ways. Yeah. All right. Concept albums. I don't have too much to add to that. I think they're interesting and cool and what the question of concept and theme is another one of these categories that's hard to really break yeah yeah and sort of what what makes it a concept album which we dove into pretty thoroughly in that episode so i'm not gonna rehash that but yeah i think yeah we are getting to stuff that we did like a couple months ago and our opinions probably haven't changed as much yeah similar to in ghost notes and friends with matt from extra credit again like I think all the stuff we said there is still very, uh, very fresh for me. I think, again, I, I just I, I want to highlight like the value of just digging into music you already yeah. like and enjoy and just really appreciating it for what it is. And that I, I think the big thing with that discussion with Matt was sort of unpacking the idea that you could appreciate music wrong. Yes. Yeah. That's a whole can of worms because... Like, you know, if you get into like, you know, imposing incorrect, like cultural assumptions on music, maybe that starts to be like, you know, being a music fan wrong, that there is a wrong way to do that. And there's a wrong way to listen to and be affected by music you enjoy is, I think, a really important thing to unpack and examine. Yeah. And I think one of the things there, too, is the sort of like gatekeeping around kind of as a subset of being a music fan wrong, not being enough of a music fan. That's one of my biggest, biggest frustrations. The, uh, you know, oh, you like this band name 37 of their finest albums. And Uh, as Aqualung, Songs from the Wood, <laughs> Crest of a Nave, JTOL.com. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't think even they have 37, but... I think the thing that I, I always try to underline is if you listen to music and listening to that music provides some sort of value or perspective to your life or even just enjoyment to your life, then you are appreciating it properly. Yeah. That's, I think, an yeah. important thing that I don't know that we hit specifically in that conversation, but like enjoyment is value. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to profoundly change your view of the world yeah. in order to have done something good for you. It's interesting because I think that the concept of appreciating music wrong actually like spins nicely into what was the next episode, which is music criticism. Because I think a yeah. lot of people's sort of sense that they're appreciating music wrong or listening to the wrong music or stuff like that comes from the pervasiveness of music criticism. Yeah. 
I mean, I think that happened because we talked about the concept of doing a music criticism yes. episode while we were talking to Matt. So it's not a coincidence <laughs> that these play into each other so well. Look. <laughs> but no, I think, yeah, I think a lot of this stuff we sort of talked about in like the music lists thing. Music criticism as a whole is much more complicated yeah. than just music lists as a specific concept. And I think that there is a lot of good in music criticism and a lot of value in it. I don't tend to pay much attention to it. Yeah. I don't tend to dig that deeply into it. I don't tend to rely on it very heavily. And I think it's it's something that's worth being careful about relying too heavily on. Yeah. But it does serve a purpose. Yeah, I think something I, I do want to underline, because I am very harsh on music criticism and music critics. Like, yeah. I agree that it serves a purpose and is important and is part of the rich cultural tradition of music discourse. I think the the big thing that I, I really kind of say a lot that I want to underline is, again, here is just like, I really believe that the focus on music criticism as the main and sometimes it seems like only method of talking about music strips us of a lot more fun, interesting, quirky, engaging, just a lot of different ways to approach and think about music because yeah. so often we're trying to put it within a critical framework. And the people that generally get paid to talk about music are music critics first and foremost. Yeah. The the other thing I would want to highlight that I don't know that we've really got into in that one is the importance of finding critics who understand the medium. Yes. Like the genre, the, the specific style. Like there's this thing that you see a lot on YouTube these days, I think partly because it makes good clickbait of like person who listens to this style of music listens to yeah. this style of music for the first time. And like there's there's some value to that. But like those are not people whose opinions I would trust. Yeah. Like you want people who actually understand that style. Like you want diehard rock fans writing your rock criticism. Yeah. You want like deep hip hop heads writing your hip hop criticism. You want to make sure. And when you have people who are maybe really qualified rock critics weighing in on disco, you know, to, yeah. to pick an example with no particular... Uh, cultural significance, but you know, you you wind up with really distorted perspectives, yeah, that don't help you understand the music and that don't help you understand what you would get from the music. I mean, getting the perspective of someone who has the same blind spots as you do can give you a sense of what you might expect going in, but it's not a good way to figure out what the music is, yeah. And it often winds up with people just, you know, either being overly positive or overly negative because they don't have the experience with the particular style or with the particular genre to offer nuance. Yeah. And I think good criticism is all about understanding and offering nuance. Yeah, I think that's a great point to leave criticism. And yeah, then we yeah. talk about our favorite one in music copyright. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, another one I could talk about a long time. I've thought a lot about like kind of what, you said there were, I, I agree that there needs to be a way to professionalize music. Generally, yeah. my opinions tend to be more on a philosophical level than on a yeah. boots to the floor ground level. But yeah, I still hate copyright. I still think it's a inefficient system that is not very good at doing the one thing that it sets out to do, which is allow people to make a living off of art. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think... 
in the realm of specifically modern American copyright law as it stands, I'm with you 100%. Yes. Like it is, it is a bad system. Yeah. It is to my mind better than having no system. That doesn't mean it could not be easily improved. Well, easily is the political will to improve it is not easy, but the systems that would be better are not hard to find. I, I do think where we disagree is I still don't necessarily know that having no system would be better. I think having no system for a lot of history would have been a lot worse because the networks of distribution were so tightly yeah. controlled. But because we're living in an increasingly decentralized world, I do think that there is a lot of potential and power to, you know, allowing people to yeah. use the networks of distribution. But I mean, even still, like, you know, anyone can post stuff on streaming, but it does take A&R people and marketers and, you know. There's a lot of daylight between distribution and monetization. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that brings us to, at the time of this recording, the last one that's released. I don't know if we want to revisit the other ones we've recorded, um, which is just one. So um, Yeah, we, we just have the Thomas one, uh, but we'll keep that one as a surprise. The Thomas we one are... is coming after this episode. Yes. <laughs> so yes. it would be very odd to yeah. <laughs> review. But yeah, no, look look out for that one. Yeah. But no, yeah, this was the, the Maggie Mae Fish discussion. Talking about uh, late careers. I, yeah, I mean, I thought that yeah. was really fun. Yeah, one thing I did sort of want to highlight a little bit, because we, we did sort of a couple times reflect on how we were maybe being a bit more negative yeah. than we like to be about music. And I think that that's true. One thing that I was thinking about afterwards is an analogy that makes sense to me is that sort of... When I look at like some late career stuff, not all, but like when I look at some of it, it's sort of similar to the discussion we had about cover songs, uh, where part of the, qu the question isn't like, is this good? It's more just like, does this have a point? Yeah, yeah. does this need to exist? And, you know, for a lot of artists, there is a point where they make new stuff and I listen to it and I'm just like, I would rather just listen to your old stuff. Yeah. And if their old stuff didn't exist, then the new stuff would be good and interesting, but it's just, it's too similar and it doesn't feel like it serves a purpose to have both of them. Yeah. And so I'm going to gravitate toward the one that I already know and like, and that's, you know, there are things artists can do to avoid that. We mentioned ACDC in that one. And I think that for me, at least ACDC avoided that trap by just so unapologetically walking into it, yeah. right? Like they stepped in the bear trap and then they just kept walking and they, they don't care that there's a bear trap on their foot now. <laughs> that level of just comfort with making the stuff that you know and like making yeah. makes a lot of it, like later ACDC stuff still feel fresh and exciting, even if it sounds exactly like the stuff they were doing in the 80s. It feels like they're having fun doing it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a, I think that's a lot of it, too, is that, like, you know, you see these bands that have, like, broke up 20 years ago, and they do this big reunion for Coachella and put out a new record, and it's like, you guys, you guys needed money, didn't you? Yeah. And it, just, it doesn't feel like, it feels like they've lost that spark. They're not actually, and sometimes, you know, some of that is, you know, they want to get back together with their friends who they haven't seen in a long time, and maybe whatever beefs broke up the band have sort of gone away with time and don't really feel as important yeah. anymore, and so they're ready to get back together but like it often just sort of feels like 
the point was to get back together, not to make new music. And that's, you know, not always. Again, I don't want to say like none of this is absolute, but that was sort of a thing I was thinking about this uh, after this discussion is sort of that Coachella effect, for lack of a better term, where like, you know, you find out like, oh, this band is getting back together and they're headlining Coachella and they haven't played together in 15 years. And it's like, I don't know, maybe that's fine. Yeah. Like maybe it's fine that they they stopped playing together. Maybe they like, but you know, sometimes sometimes good stuff happens. That's not a blanket statement either. But I think often with bands getting back together, also often it is when they've been apart for so long. The reality is people change. People change constantly yeah. and drastically. And often when bands are in a band together, sometimes they'll you know evolve together. But just as often they'll yeah. change in different ways. And when they come back together, it's Drift not the apart, same yeah. people. It's different people yeah. who you know have the same name and have the same personal history. But yeah. they're they're different people than than they were. And they're different then. artists, yes, especially. Especially, yeah. And there's that. But then there's also like we talked about that pressure to sound like what fans want. Like I mentioned, Blink One Eighty Two in that. And it was was pretty dismissive of their new stuff. But like a lot of it is like, you know, if Blink-182 came out with stuff that didn't sound like Blink-182, if there was this big hubbub about them getting back together and then they released songs that sounded like Imagine Dragons or something, like a lot of people would be pissed. And so there's this significant pressure on them to pretend like those artistic changes and those personal changes haven't happened. And I don't, again, I don't know specifically about Blink-182, but like, you know, it often results in music that sounds like it's cosplaying as what the band used to be more than music that feels like someone genuinely making stuff they want to make. And again, as always, all of this comes with a million caveats. This is not true of every late career. It's not true of every band that gets back together after 20 years. It's just a thing that happens. Yeah, I think it's tough. A whole other aspect, you know, in that also is, Bands tend to create music as parts of movements and scenes that happen in a certain time. And, you know, if we're using the Blink-182 example, I mean, maybe now there is a pop-punk revival going on, but that's a different scene. Uh, And, you know, pop-punk, when they were making it, they were, you know, the vanguard of a scene that was evolving and was super exciting. And now that scene has kind of worn out and you know a new generation is reviving it but that scene the scene births so much of artists as well yeah i don't want to be too negative again i don't like being negative about other people's art and it so like and i think that you know if, if people are genuinely enjoying getting together with friends they haven't played with in 15 years and making new music with them it doesn't super matter whether I enjoy that music. Yeah. You know, like that that's an important thing to be aware of too. But it just it just means I often don't. And and again, as always, varies by artist. This one was recent enough that I remember the thoughts that I had <laughs> right after recording where I was like, oh, I should have said that. So figured I'd get some of those out there to compensate for like the five in a row where we were just like, I don't have any thoughts on that. Yeah. <laughs> Which to be fair. We said at the beginning, before we started recording, we were going to try and do that a bunch so that this episode didn't get ridiculously long. Didn't quite work out that way. Yeah, well... That wasn't quite the path we took through this. That's all right. Yeah. That's 50 episodes, you know? Yeah. I I do think we should call it here, because we do have future episodes, yeah. and I don't want to get too... 
I don't want to spoil the mini episodes. We have a, we have 50 yeah. more pre-recorded. Yeah, I'm just getting really sick of you. But just waiting for you. <laughs> yeah, we actually recorded all of these at once. Yes. Back in uh, 2015. It was an eight-day recording binge. <laughs> it's yeah. We eventually when those run out, you'll find out that we've actually we've actually haven't made anything since then. It was just a very very productive week. But yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, thanks for listening to 50 episodes of us for some reason. Yeah, that's exciting. And yeah, here's to 50 more, maybe. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye.